So while I was out um, in the Tecumseh, uh, Nick and Isaiah came out and joined me for a little bit one evening. That was really good. But Nick and I were talking about the importance of giving little boys outlets for aggression. Not for aggression's sake, right? But as redemptive outlets for the way they're wired. So from Genesis, we know that built into boys is a desire to lead and to rule and to subdue and to produce and reproduce. That's, that's built in. It's a law of God. It's a universal phenomenon. You can fight it, but you won't change it. A, bo- a group of boys goes out to play, and within seconds, a stick becomes either a gun or a sword. There are wars to fight, people to save, hills to conquer, forts to build, and all of that usually requires some form of tactical demolition or death or takeover. Just, it is the way it is. Nick and I were talking, good things happen when you channel and encourage that aggression into redemptive play. Whether you're shooting unwanted pests or rabid large animals or putting down bad guys to uphold righteousness, or protect your home, or to keep your neighbors safe, or to protect the poor, the vulnerable, the weak, or the distressed. It's really good. And two beneficial things come out of that. I think it helps you to help little boys gain an affection for God. And also an appreciation, an appreciation for who God has made them to be. Like, oh, this is not abnormal. Like, you made me this way. That's your creative order. I appreciate that. I appreciate you. I'm thankful for you, God. I'm thankful for the way you've made me. But if you try to cap or harness that, and there's no element in which then they lack a contrast point. Here's the second beneficial thing that comes out of helping them to in this this redemptive play is that they have a contrast point against negative or godless aggression. Like it's okay to do it this way. It's okay to shoot chipmunks and bad guys, right? These are appropriate outlets. It's okay to kick indoors and save your mom and your sister or rescue your friend. These are good things, but it's not okay when it turns against the innocent or the vulnerable. In other words, aggression toward your sister is very bad, but protection of your sister is very good, and there's a lot of excitement around it. You give them a contrast. Built into little boys, they're designed by God to desire responsibility, to lead, to rule, to subdue, produce and to reproduce it's designed in there and there's a redemptive way to do that and there's a destructive way to do that but it is the way and that will way will not change much like god has wired little boys in a particular way he has wired all of us in a certain way it's born in we were made to worship We talked about this several months ago. 
Why do people scream at the top of their lungs at sporting events? Why is that? Because we're made to worship. Why do people sing at the top of their lungs with lighters, or I guess now it's cell phones, right? That's, why do they do that? Because we're made to see things that are beautiful and to respond. We are made to worship. We are built with something inside of us that desires to be awed and to be inspired and to cheer for and to respect and to honor and to come under the submission of, to belong to something or someone bigger than ourselves. We are worshipers. That is the way it is. We will worship. The question is what? There is a redemptive way to worship and there is a destructive way to worship. But it is the way and it will not change. Church, these last few weeks I've gotten a sense that maybe I was with somebody on Friday and then a family member said to me, hey, so-and-so had a good time with you. And I said, walked away and he said, uh, man, that guy's intense. I did it again. I didn't mean for that to happen. Um, but I hope this delivery for me, I want this for us. And as I think about our church, that we have a lot of people who have gone to church here for a long time. And I think the tendency, this is not true for all of us, but the tendency is to grow really comfortable and common. And this is what we do. And we do this every week. And and so some of these stirrings for us to really consider what we do when we come to worship together. That is my heart, that we are drawn to say, I want to grow Not to feel condemned. The goal is not condemnation or intensity, for intensity's sake. But for us to seriously think through what it is that we do when we come here together. And how that impacts our week on the front end or the back end. Because church, organizing our lives around Jesus here should change every minute of our lives. True? And so we're going to be looking at a familiar story of Jesus cleansing the temple in Luke chapter 19. We've been walking through the Gospels and taking a snapshot from Matthew and then Mark and now Luke and then next week, John. What does Jesus think about when He calls us to worship? When He's teaching about worship? This, is the owner, this, this overturning of the tables is one event in a much larger snapshot. It's, a, it's, a, it's one event in a larger narrative. It is about Jesus turning over destructive worship and calling to redemptive worship. It's not just, ooh, Jesus is ticked and He turns some tables over. He is literally wanting to overturn worship that is wrong and destructive. And He wants to renew the people's, ours, perspective on worship. 
And so this account in Luke chapter 19 is actually in the middle of a crucial journey, some context for us, where Jesus goes, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he goes specifically because he wants to present himself to the religious leaders as Messiah. That's his intention. Yes, this is the group we talked about last week that was not willing to accept his Messiahship, that he is God, but this is his intended purpose. He's going to Jerusalem, and he is going to present himself to the religious leaders, I'm the Messiah. And much like last week, despite the overwhelming prophetic evidence in the Old Testament that would have pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, which, by the way, the Pharisees, the teachers, the scribes would have all... Scribes, by the way, are the guys who write down the Bible. They're the one who translate it so it gets copied from person to person. They were responsible for knowing every letter of the entire Torah, the Tanakh. So they would have known all of these 300 plus prophecies that would have pointed to Jesus. They would have known these by heart. Then there was this coupling with all of these hundreds of miracles that are going on around Jesus. So before he comes into the city of Jerusalem, there's this huge hubbub, and we learned a little bit about that from Mark's gospel last week. This is not something that was done in a vacuum, right? The scribes came down from Galilee to see what was going on, 90-mile walk, because they heard that this was happening. So hundreds of confirming miracles, miracles, and then even their own marveling at his responses to their questions. Look at chapter 19 of Luke, verses 26 and verse 39. Nope. Wrong reference. Let me find it. Well, look at verse 39 in chapter 20. It must be 20. Sorry, guys. Verse 26 of 20. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And then chapter 20, verse 39, Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, You have spoken well. And for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. So he's coming to announce himself as Messiah. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, as predicted. All these prophecies they should have known. Miracles, people raising from the dead, healings, walking on water, feeding thousands of people. All of this stuff happening. They're listening to him and they're going... This guy's way wise. They still refuse to believe. Paul says this level of truth, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that is so evident must be repressed. It must be willfully held down. I see it. I will not believe it. And that's where these leaders were. And then in 1947, 
the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Now that passage is bookended. The passage we're looking at in Luke 19 is bookended with two stories that are capturing the people's enthusiasm for what's going on. So this is juxtaposed in this narrative against the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders' resistance to Jesus. There's a juxtaposition, and we're supposed to see this very clearly, that the people were super excited about him. This is on the end of the section we'll be reading, 1948. For all the people were hanging on his words. And then looking, starting in verse 36 of chapter 19. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God, and with a loud voice, for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they're saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The reason they were saying that is because the crowd was saying, You're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. And they're going, That's blasphemy. You've got to shut that down. And Jesus says, If I shut them down, the rocks and the trees will announce it. In other words, it is so plain that I'm the Messiah that you're dumber than a rock. You, do, you won't see. The rocks will cry out. From the minute Jesus enters the city limits, His Messiahship is announced. So this last section we have read, I often read this around Easter time, it's called the Triumphal Entry. And again, this happens right at the city limits. Why were there a bunch of people there? Because it was prophesied that the Messiah would come in and they were waiting for him to ride in into Jerusalem. That's why they were there. He rides a little bit farther than that. And then he comes to a vantage point. So he's somewhere in between the city limits and Jerusalem itself. He comes to a place You guys have done this before. You come up over a hill, and then all of a sudden there's a city that's sprawled out. That's what happens. He comes up over some kind of a rise, and there's the city of Jerusalem. And when he sees the city, he starts weeping, crying very hard. Nineteen, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they were hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you and they will not leave a stone, one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now I want to make a quick note here, because some people want to make this verse about the prophecy. They get sidelined thinking about this date. Was that the fulfillment? Of, you know, was the fulfillment of this prophecy in Romans 70 A.D. Was it the full fulfillment, or was it half and partial, and the rest is coming later? And we're scouring around Revelation, and now we're, you know. Chapter 21, and then we're into Daniel and his seven weeks, and what does this all this mean? There's a time for that kind of a study, but 
it often sidetracks and misses the main point of the passage. The point of the passage is not about the prophecy. Hear me. We can't afford to get lost. The point of the passage is this. They missed Jesus. That's the point of the passage. And because they missed Jesus, like everybody else who's ever missed Jesus, and who everybody else who will miss Jesus, there are profound, eternal consequences for that. That's the point. They missed who Jesus was. In verse 42 he says, you're missing that I am your peace with God. If only you would have known what truly brings you peace, it's me. And then in verse 44, he says, you did not know the time of your visitation. What's that mean? You didn't realize that God came to you. You missed me. So church, to make sure we are not missing Jesus, let's remember that this passage is about worship and giving him our full attention. That's what it's about. We don't want to miss him. And so after the triumphal entry, Jesus sweeps over the city and then he continues his descent down into the town and right when he gets to Jerusalem, he makes a beeline to where? To the temple. He goes straight to the point of worship. And we know that during this period of time that Jesus spends a lot of time in and around the temple. So if you're looking around in in chapter 19, verse 45, he entered the temple. In chapter 20, verse 1, he was teaching in the temple. In 21.1, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. That means he's at the temple. In verse 21, verse 5, while some were speaking of the decorations in the temple, he said, so he's standing around, people are talking about, oh, those are pretty nice vine grapes, you know, they carved, who carved those, you know. Brother Jeremiah or whatever. And Jesus is taking note. He's in the temple. In chapter 21, verse 37, now every day he was teaching in the temple. The temple is a place where people came together for worship. At this point in time, the Old Testament sacrificial system was still in place. And so there was buying and selling of sacrificial animals. But the temple was supposed to be a place where people came to bring gifts to God. They came to worship. They either came to say, God, I really blew it this week and I need your help, and they would have a particular sacrifice for that. Or they would come and say, oh my gosh, God, you blessed me, and and I can't believe how overwhelmingly good my life is. And they would bring a, 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 a gift of thanksgiving and praise. They would bring a grain offering. Or they might say, wow, my... I got really sick and then something happened and we got some mold in the kitchen and really sorry, we're recognizing this is about cleanliness and they would have another offering about, Lord, we want to be clean before you. And so whatever the station of their week was, they would have a gift to bring. A good week, a bad week, a hard week, an easy week, a worshipful week, a a, a time where they're belabored and struggling, they would have an offering. Lord, we're here and we're bringing you something. They were to be repenting of their sin. They were wanting to hear the word of God read out loud. 
they were singing together and singing praises, worshiping, and they were pledging themselves to God, to his work and to his ways, and also to make him known as a community. There is something going on here with a God that is so big and so immense, and we want the nations to know about it. That's why they were supposed to be coming to the temple. Sound familiar, church? It's not that far from us, true? But many of those purposes had gotten lost. And the people, especially the leadership, but the people had all drifted. And so here's what was actually going on in the temple. They were buying, selling items. In particular, the leaders were making money for their ministries. Somehow they had justified all this. They were selling their worship wares and justifying it somehow for the people, but they were making money. People were taking shortcuts through the temple compound. The temple's sort of in the middle of the city and in between business operations or social events, and people didn't want to go all the way around the temple so that they were carelessly just walking through the temple. They were cutting through to save time between business or social meetings. There was money changing that was happening. So foreigners would come in from all over to make sacrifices, but they didn't have the right currency. And so they were exchanging money in order to be able to buy things in Jerusalem. But even that, the religious leaders were, you know, when Mary and I would go to the Dominican Republic, you would shop around and you would try to get a good exchange rate. Some people would try to rip you off. And if you were desperate... You would just go to the, this one guy that had the biggest knife's booth, and he made more money off you. Well, these religious leaders were making money. They didn't have any place else to go. We're here at the temple. Shoot, we don't want to go back outside of town. I don't have the money. And, oh, we'll do it for you, but it's 50 to 1, our benefit. Well, that's going on here. And on top of that, people were buying and selling sacrifices. Now, typically, they would have went outside of town and picked a lamb, They would have brought it into their house and familiarized themselves with the lamb. Their children would have played with it, might even have given it a name, but it was supposed to, the the Passover lamb or the chosen lamb was supposed to spend time with the family. There's a reason for that. Throughout the week, they were supposed to pray over this lamb and put their little, all their sins on this little lamb. And then at the end of the week, while their children watched, the lamb would be slaughtered as an evidence that it costs death to take care of our sin. And so they were supposed to gain the gravity of the reality that life gets lost when I say no to God. But rather, people were walking in, they were picking out a lamb over here and then taking over to here. It became a thing they did. There was no sacrifice in their sacrifice. There was no worship in it. It was just the thing that we do. They were doing things for doing them's sake. And the other thing that was going on in the temple at this time is that the place where all of this money exchanging and the selling of lambs was happening, because it was supposed to happen outside of the temple, the bringing in the lambs, But they sectioned off a part of the courtyard of the temple, which was the part that the Gentiles that were striving to believe in Yahweh were supposed to have because they were unclean. So the section that was left for the Gentiles, that's where the money changing was taking place. 
And Jesus is ticked. And I'm saying it lightly. He's frustrated. You're supposed to be a light to the nations. And you're consuming the part where the nations come to me. And you've crossed that off for your own selfish purposes. You've lost sight of me. You've lost sight of worship. You're walking in. It's the lamb thing here and the slaughtering it there. And you walk out. You're doing your deal. You know, your confession thing or whatever it is that you're doing. In our case, we come in, we sing the words, we think about everything that we have to say or talk about before the service or little business transactions or projects. i got to talk to so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. We come in here, we do our shtick, then we talk about our business stuff and we keep going. We cross right through the courtyard. We pass right by God, church. That's not true all the time, right? But we have to be careful. Jesus is enraged. This, the house of his, the Father that's set aside for God visiting with mankind. Where men and women from all nations gather to seek the Lord and to find freedom, hope, and joy. Right? Has become a money-making social club. It was commercialized. It became a cut-through place. People were giving more thought about who they needed to talk to regarding their next event or project than they were about what they bring to the Lord. Religious motions are thoughtlessly performed, and the people's desire to reach the nations, the mandate to reach the nations was good with the good news was replaced by our own selfishness and monotony and religion. And again, church, I do not want to condemn us, but the similarities to our own temptations should not be lost. And it's in this context that Jesus literally starts grabbing the edges and flipping tables. He overturns this warped version of God's house. This is not at all what this is supposed to be. And he says to them, verse 46, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He crams two prophecies together. My house shall be a house of prayer. We read that when we started in Isaiah chapter 56. And you have made it into a den of robbers. He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7. And here, between these two prophecies crammed together, that we get a glimpse of Jesus' hearts towards worship and how it impacts him and how he reacts to it when people's hearts are distracted and cluttered. When God becomes a monotonous thing that we do and he becomes one more thing in our grab bag of goodies by which we serve ourselves. And so these overturning, in this overturning, Jesus quotes first from Isaiah. Let me read the whole context for you. If you want to flip over there, I'd encourage you to do that. It's Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 7. It is on your handout if you don't have a Bible. Jesus 
Jesus is referencing this passage. Now, it could have been it could have been that he actually quoted the whole thing and that it's being summarized for us. We don't know. Regardless, he would have been thinking about the whole thing. Listen to his mind, listen to Jesus's vision from the word of God on worship. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath. This is repeated several times, church. I don't think we've... We like all of the Ten Commandments. They're pretty good. Don't murder. Don't kill. I think I'm... Okay, I didn't do that one. The Sabbath-keeping one. We relegate that to a completely different list. But he says it three times. And he keeps his hand from doing evil. Verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. This is awesome. Because Jesus is, through the prophet, is making specific reference to two people who would normally have been outside of the temple. Foreigners and eunuchs. Eunuchs were guys who were emasculated for whatever reason or other. They lost their manhood. Okay, we doing okay? And the book of Leviticus is clear. If that happened, they weren't allowed to enter the temple. Jesus invites foreigners and single people and says, I'm going to give you an inheritance with my children. He even tells the eunuch specifically, if the eunuch says, behold, I'm a dry tree, the Lord says, verse 4, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me. This is worship. Church, tomorrow, when you're faced with a decision, and you choose the thing that pleases the Lord, even though you don't feel like it, and you do that against your feelings in faith, the Lord says, I'll establish my house with you. Hello? And then after you obey and your feelings still aren't there, you say to the Lord, here's what's true. You have established your house with me. Help me to live it as if that's true. Verse 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name that is better than sons and daughters. Hello? Hello? We're a church that loves our kids. It's a good thing. It's really good. This is not Rob's opinion. This is thus saith the Lord. There's something better. A lot of times these eunuchs were not eunuchs on their own accord. Most people believe David, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have all been eunuchs. They didn't choose it. And God says, I'll give you something better. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, 
to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Church, do you want to know the secret to joyful worship here? It's worshiping tomorrow and putting him first. And when we come together and we say, Lord, I didn't do it perfectly, or if I blew it this week, I come and I bring you an offering of repentance and sin. But you're first in my life, and that's why I'm doing this. Or maybe, Lord, I, 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 a couple of times I blew through those things, and I, I obeyed, I, I did what pleased you. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Church, this is Jesus' heart on worship. So I, this is why he quotes the verse. And then Jeremiah chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Isaiah starts with, thus says the Lord. Jeremiah starts with, thus says the Lord. Here's what's true. Stand in the gates of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. This worship. Tuesday, you're faced with a couple of decisions. You amend your ways to please the Lord. Church, it's worship. You're hovering over a garden bed with a group of friends and you're reaching out to people and, Lord, I'd rather be someplace else or saying something else or doing or liking somebody else. But I'm doing this for you because you know what's best for me. Amend your ways and and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Listen to this, verse 4. Jeremiah chapter 7. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. You you hear what he's saying? Amend your ways to follow the Lord. And don't trust in these deceptive words. I go to church. I go to church. I go to church. It is not worship. It's deceptive to say, I'm pleasing the Lord because I go to church, I go to church, I go to church. He's saying, amend your ways. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the father or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after the God's to your own harm, you ought to circle if, 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 those are all clauses, if, then, here's the then in verse 7, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers for, forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You will steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make an offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then you come before me and stand in my house, in which is called the name, and you say, we are delivered. 
He says, you're deceived. If you live, you commit adultery, you swear, you make offerings to Baal, you go after other gods that will not save you, and then you come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and you say, we're delivered. Only to go on sinning throughout the week. Has this house, which has been called my by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? He's, see, here's where Jesus is quoting. You're stealing from God. Church, this is a good word, yeah? Yeah. So like, convicting but really good, right? See, the essence of true worship is captured in both Isaiah and Jeremiah and quoted by Jesus. There's two words that are used in the Bible that translate into our word worship. Old Testament, New Testament. We don't need to talk about what their names are. There's a word in Hebrew and a word in Greek. And both of them mean two things, to bow in reverence and two, to be subservient out of a deep love and honor. In other words, I do what you want me to do because I love and trust you and to bow in honor. And again, these are captured, this bowing in reverence and this subservience out of love and honor, they're captured in these two prophets. Those who amend their ways, those who keep justice, the man who does this, those who keep the Sabbath, who keeps his hand from evil, who joins himself to the Lord, who chooses things that please the Lord, who hold fast to God's covenants, who join themselves to the Lord, who minister to the Lord, and who pledge to be his servants. Church, that's not one hour a week. Right? That's our whole lives. That's worship. It's what we get to do. The God of the universe has said, you Gentiles, I'm making a place for you. I'm turning over tables so you can have this place in my home. Follow me and I will give you a name that lasts forever. This is true. And so we have said that worship contains four key elements. Him, me, pledge, be, right? To see and know God for who He is and His redemptive works and to respond to that knowledge from the heart by esteeming God and valuing God and treasuring God and being satisfied with God. That's where it starts. And God, You are so good and kind to me, a sinner who has broken Your covenant time and time again. We see ourselves rightly before the Lord. This unscalable chasm, we can't get there, but You came and got us. We're struck with our utter need for rescue from our sinful rebellion and His grace in providing it. And we see his, Him rightly, Him, and we see ourselves rightly, me. And then we said, what else can I do but to pledge my whole life to you? Peter says, where else would we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Or the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 6, when his sin is cleansed, when he see God's sees God for who he is, and then he sees himself, oh my gosh, I am a man of unclean lips, and then what does does Isaiah say? Here I am, send me. That's worship, church. And then be, him, me, pledge, be, then we live out our actions that are love-rooted, gratitude-driven, joyfully submissive to God's values, his will, and his ways for the love and sacrifice of others, love and service of others. It's worship. It's all week long. 
And then we come here to celebrate what God is doing in our lives. Good and bad. This is the benefit of church. I have a really bad week. I fell, blew it with sin. I come here and I say, Lord, I need you. I've had a great week. Things are going good. I I overcame a few things. Mm, Yeah, Getting some traction here, Lord. I need you. So when Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, he is defining true worship for us. How should we conform ourselves to God's vision of worship? Three things, simple. But Paul tells Timothy, think about this, farmer, athlete, soldier, you're going to gain a lot of insight from this. I would say three things I want to encourage you. Here's ways we respond to this message, how we conform ourselves to God's vision of worship. True worship must be centered in God's truth. Now, you have to compare this last week to our cultural list, right? True worship doesn't conform to, you know, I don't wear the t-shirt, or I got the emblem on my car, or, you know, I use essential oils, Um, we don't believe in meds, you know. I mean, we got the whole Christian lingo down. That's not, it's not our rules. It's his rules. We don't determine righteousness and then fool everybody because we're doing really good at it like the Pharisees. These are his rules. True worship must be centered on God's truth. How are we doing taking care of loving one another, serving the things that Isaiah and Jeremiah referenced? That is true worship. How are we doing there? Right? True worship must be centered in God's truth, not our cultural list. True worship involves reverence and serving. If you're on our email list, Ian sent out an email. That was to everybody, yeah? Somebody did. Okay. Never mind, scratch that. True worship involves reverence and serving. We bow, we say, Lord, I'm going to do what pleases you. And we come to church and we do that together. It's a both and. It's a reverence and a serving. It's life and it's lips. It's words and it's deeds. True worship involves reverence and serving. We bring our whole week as a gift We rest in what Christ Jesus has done for us in rescuing us, and we work during the week. And last, true worship takes mental, emotional, and physical preparation. Church, I want to encourage us on this one. Um, I laid in bed this morning just trying to make some application, and I... Man, just straight up, it was foreign to me. To spend time thinking about what I'm doing when I get here, other than i got to teach, and then I want to check in with so-and-so, and and I want to check in with so-and-so, so-and-so. Those are not bad things, but it's not the primary reason I'm here. Just laying and thinking about what I'm bringing to God today. Church, I need to do that. I would encourage us 
Lord, what do I bring you today from my week? Do I, do I bring you an offering of sacrifice, of praise, gratitude, thanksgiving? Am I bringing you an offering of repentance? And then we ought to come ready, prepared physically and emotionally. Emotion is not the goal of worship, but it's part of it. It's all throughout Scripture. Respond to how good God's been to me. Even in the volume of my music and my praise, responding physically to His goodness. True worship must be centered on God's truth. True worship revolves, involves reverence and serving. And true worship takes mental, emotional, and physical preparation. Jesus, thank You for even today overturning this idea of worship for us and helping us to see worship as you do. This whole life interaction with the God who has redeemed us and called us to be his children. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for leading us. Thanks for being our pastor and our shepherd. Thanks for being willing to do hard things on the behalf of other people for us. Thank you for being so wise and consistent. Thank you for willing your willingness to confront pride and hypocrisy out loud and in public. Thank you for your willingness to be gentle and kind to those who are broken and humble in heart. Thank you for going after the, the one and leaving the 99. Thank you for leading your disciples so well and for teaching and training them and then entrusting your true gospel to a group of people who didn't deserve it because we can relate. Jesus, thank you for living out the word. Thank you for living perfectly. Thank you for never sinning. Jesus, thank you for the time in the garden when you were pressed under the weight of the world considering taking on our sin and everybody else's that ever has existed for all times and breaking your bond between Father, Son, and Spirit. And I can't quite get my mind around it, but it must have been tough because you sweated blood. You gave up your will for the Father's will to redeem us. Thank you for going all the way to the cross. Thank you for not giving up and blaspheming God in the middle, in the midst of your pain and difficulty. Thanks for absorbing all the injustice in the world in one fell swoop. Thank you for not taking the vinegar to dull your pain. Thank you for giving up your soul to the Father on our behalf. Thank you for conquering death for coming back to life, to appearing to the disciples, eating with them, allowing Thomas to stick his hand in your side, in your wrists. Thank you for putting up with doubt. Thank you for coming back for us. Thank you for your promise of loving us and living in us and for, for sending the Spirit, the Comforter, in your absence to be in us. Jesus, we want to organize our lives around true worship as you see it. And put off all the cultural stuff and break through all of our 
monotony and our religion that we get stuck on sometimes and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I, you know I know a lot of these people in this room. And this is a group that wants to worship you in spirit and truth, Lord. And I'm thankful to be part of it. Lord, continue to make us those who worship you in spirit and truth. And we pledge ourselves to be those who worship you in spirit and truth. We have a lot to give thanks to you today for. Thank you for turning our lives over. And thank you for being the center of it all. Accept our worship and our praise now as we sing to you. Jesus, our King, God, our Father. In your name, amen.